0: Well, um, for those of you who are new, uh, you're joining us as we're towards the beginning of a series in the book of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke's Gospel is his eyewitness account. Now, Luke himself wasn't an eyewitness, but he went round, he tells us in the first few verses of his book uh, that he went round interviewing the eyewitnesses, that he created an orderly account so that (coughs) Theophilus, the very important man who uh, he was writing to and was the kind of guy that... this this book is dedicated to would have certainty um, that what he's reading isn't myth it isn't hearsay, it isn't made up but it's straight from the eyewitnesses and uh, Luke's account reads very much like history one of the things you can test as we go through is whether it does that and one of the things I've said as we've uh, started out in Luke is that it'd be great if those of you who um, would confidently uh, call yourself Christians would realise that um, as we often emphasise here, I'm not the minister of the church. My title really should be Equipper. because a, a pastor teacher is uh, there is described his job description in uh, in the Bible is to equip God's people for works of ministry. Um, so you're the ministers, and we're studying Luke so that you can go out and share it with others. And so we've got lots of little copies of Luke's gospel. Um, there's even a helpful uh, study guide which has some questions in it. Uh, so that you could read one-to-one uh, with someone who's not yet a Christian and just walk them through it. Because so often people assume that what we're reading, uh, what Anna just read to us, is is myth, is kind of long way away from the historical events. And just showing them the, the passage itself, just showing them the text itself, will show them that it's history, that it's interesting history. And in fact, it's life-changing history. And that's what we're going to be looking at now. So we dive into Luke chapter 3. And... Luke's chapters 1 and 2 are all about the birth and uh, childhood of John the Baptist, who we're looking at now, and Jesus. Um, And so they're kind of preparatory, we don't get to hear much of Jesus, we hear one little sentence of his that we heard last week. Um, But here we get introduced to John the Baptist as a grown man, um, in his uh, early 30s probably. Um, We're in about the year, well it seems from uh, from the detail that we get uh, in chapter 3 verse 1. Uh, We're in the year A.D. 29. Now, that may confuse you. Uh, Jesus is over 30, and we're in A.D. 29, because Jesus was probably born in about 4 B.C. There's a nice little interesting fact for you. Jesus was born before Christ. Um, But that's because the dating was done. It's got nothing to do with the reliability of the Bible. The dating was done way, way, way later. And they got it nearly right. Um, So here we are in... uh, Luke chapter 3, and we're being introduced to this great guy, John the Baptist. And the key message of this whole section, and this is really the sum of John's whole ministry, is all here in these 20 verses. The key message is, get ready. Get ready. It's there uh, in, on the inside of your service sheets there's the title for uh, the sermon, get ready. Now, whenever a special person comes to visit, there's a lot of getting ready to be done, Um, Whenever there's a big special event, like a wedding. Um, Rebecca's about to have uh, a wedding in the summer. When is it? In July? May. 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 There we are. And there's lots of getting ready, I hear, through Carl and Penny. Lots and lots of preparation for a big event. And when a big visitor comes, like the Queen or something, apparently she always uh, has the the smell of fresh paint wherever she goes. Because there's been so much getting ready uh, to prepare for her arrival. But here we're not just looking at outward readiness. This is about inward readiness. This isn't just getting ready for the visit of a special person. This is getting ready for a relationship with a very special person, with God himself. And the summary of John's message, whose job was to get people ready for Jesus, is there in verse 3 of what Hannah read for us. It's there in your service sheets. Verse 3. He, that's John, went into all the country around the Jordan, that's the river, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now the word uh, repent simply means to turn around. Um, To turn around. And so uh, the first heading there is to turn back to God, because John isn't just talking about... Uh, sorting your life out, doing things differently. He's talking about turning back to a relationship with God. Now, we, for those of us who make lots of mistakes, we, we, um, we repent quite frequently. So I might be driving along, and often I'm insistent, the best way to go is uh, if I'm going out to um, visit Gliss's parents in uh, Southfields, so or the best way to go is up Ballon Park Road and so on. And then I'm halfway there, and I remember there are road works. And I think... Oh gosh, I really have gone the wrong way. And I could just keep thinking like that, oh, I've made a mistake, and just sit it out and then end up sitting in really, really slow traffic and so on. But until I actually turn around and go back and go a different route, I haven't repented. That's what repentance is. Now, John came with not a new message, John came with a very similar message to the Old Testament prophets. And in our first couple of verses, we get that kind of introduction. Um, The bit that that, poor Anna had to deal with, I just sprung it on her, and she had to read all those complicated names. But that kind of introduction in verses 1 and 2 is the same kind of introduction that you get in the Old Testament, in the first half of the Bible, um, about all the great prophets prophets. So let's read that again, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituraea and Trachonitis and Lysanus, Tetrarch of Abilene, if you say it confidently, it doesn't matter whether you get it right or not. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That formula is exactly how the Old Testament prophets were introduced. You're told when things happened and what happened. And and back then they didn't have dates. They didn't have B.C. and A.D. like we do. And so the way to date something was around the key political figures of the time. But this is also interesting for us just from a, a historical point of view. Luke gets it spot on. Luke gets it spot on. He gets the dating absolutely right. He knows who all these figures are. He knows the names of who's there, who are the big leaders, like Tiberius Caesar, everyone had heard of him, Pontius Pilate, everyone had heard of him, Then the smaller leaders like Herod, and then the even smaller leaders like Philip and Lysanias. And in fact, um, historians often try and pick holes in the Bible and... Uh, I suppose that's understandable. They wanted to test it. But there was a time when people thought that Luke had got this totally wrong because there was no evidence of Lysanias having been around. And, um, and so they thought, well, maybe Luke got that wrong. Um, there was another Lysanias much later in the first century. Maybe he was just writing then and he was just confusing everything up and a mishmash. Well, some documents were found, some inscriptions were uncovered. And it turned out that Luke was right And he was the one who'd recorded the accurate history, and we just had not found it yet. Um, And that's so often the case with the Bible. So don't just listen to hearsay, don't just dismiss it. The detail's important. This is true historical fact. But it's not a new message that John has. He is just like the Old Testament prophets, saying, turn back, turn back to God. So often people look at the first half of the Bible and they think, Oh, gosh, it's full of all kinds of frightening things and horrible things. And and how can I possibly follow a God whose people are like that? Are these supposed to be examples to me? Their murderousness, their incest, their uh, family mess up. The point is that it's full of a history of people who continue to fail, who continue to fail. And God in his love sends prophets to say, turn back, repent, come back into relationship with me. And in that sense, John is saying nothing new. But there is something new. There is something new. There's a new visual aid. Baptism. It's there the end of verse 3. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's interesting that uh, John didn't just baptise people, but we're told he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's a message. It's not just an action. And so we need to understand what that baptism means so often in our society especially in sort of Christianised society people get baptised, babies get baptised and no one really thinks what is going on here and why does it happen but John preached a message and actually baptism itself is a fantastic visual aid it's a fantastic visual aid of um, uh, of washing yes in water But John holding someone and putting them down into the water was a sign that they were dying to their old self. And then as they were raised up out of the water, it's a sign that there's new life, a new beginning, washed clean from the past, ready for a new relationship with the God they were made to know. Now this ritual, this symbol of baptism... There's some evidence of it being used towards the end of the 1st century, perhaps into the 2nd century, as a sign uh, that Jews used for bringing Gentiles, non-Jews that is, into the people of Israel. It was a kind of sign of a new beginning, that they were joining, a new, joining the Jews from outside, coming, becoming a Jew. But actually, there's, that, that may be... Um, that may be a very helpful thing and some commentators say well that suggests that this kind of baptism was going on for a long time before and John was picking up on that but what's really striking is that John isn't saying to non-Jews how to become Jews, these are Jews coming out to him, this is the land of Israel, this is the land of God's people, Uh, these are the religious people and John is saying they need a new beginning, they need a new beginning. I think I'm more inclined to believe that since that came up towards the end of the first century, that actually John came up with this first, that God revealed this to John as a way to bring in, uh, uh, to point forward to the Lord Jesus. But either way, um, it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. The key thing is that this baptism is a new beginning, but also it's for the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. John isn't talking here about... Uh, pulling our moral socks up. It's not trying to earn something. You don't come and you think, oh, what kind of religious things could I do to impress God, including baptism, and then God will be impressed by me, and then God will accept me. No, it's recognising that we have nothing to offer God except our sin, and that we need to be forgiven. It's like um, the story Jesus told of the... The lost son. Uh, Those of you who are familiar with uh, the stories Jesus told will know it, where a son uh, pushes his father out and says, I want to take all my inheritance and run away, and I wish you were dead, and I'm going to live on my own, and I'm going to do my own thing, and I'll be much happier without you. And then he squanders his wealth, and he ends up poor. And he turns back to God. He repents, he turns around, he goes back to his father. And he seeks a relationship with his father. And his father welcomes him back. And in doing that turning around, that repenting, it's not that he earned a position in his family. No, he's freely welcomed with open arms. But he did have to head home. He did have to head home. He did have to want to be back in that relationship. And baptism is a sign of a restored relationship a new beginning. But that then leads to the question, which is on your sheets, why now? Why now? And the answer is because now John is the last great prophet. John is the last great prophet because God is coming, because God is coming. I hope you find these pictures useful. Um, uh, I was helped in chatting to some people. It helps lodge lodge these things in your mind if you can visualise it. Um, God is coming. Um, That's why uh, John does this baptism now. This is why there's a new symbol of renewed relationship with God. And in saying there's a new thing, uh, Luke, who's recording this for us, links back to a prophecy of another great prophet, Isaiah. It's there in verse 4. Isaiah, on your sheet says, As is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make, make straight paths for him. Now that word, Lord, is a quote from Isaiah. And the word Lord there hides something else which is written behind it, which is uh, it's often written in capitals, capital L-O-R-D, in the Old Testament, And um, uh, that word Lord means Yahweh, which is the name for God, for God himself. The great God, the eternal God. And uh, Isaiah prophesied that someone would come, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, for God himself. And actually the make straight paths for him is more of a paraphrase, because if you look it up back in Isaiah, if we had time to do it, we'd see that. It actually says, make a straight path or a highway for our God. And so by quoting this, as John is crying out like one in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, John is saying, I am getting ready for God himself. So if you ever have people who are saying, oh well, uh, Jesus never claimed to be God, or no one ever thought that he was God himself. Um, Well, there are lots of verses, but... Often we overlook something like this. This makes it very clear that John was preparing the way for the Lord. And so when Jesus came, it was God himself coming. In verse 5, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. That word salvation just means rescue. So why now? God is coming, and what's God coming to do? Well, there's another visual aid. That's of someone... Uh, being lowered down from a helicopter to rescue someone from a sinking ship. God has come to rescue people. God has come to rescue people. God is getting people ready for the God who has come to rescue us. Now in many ways this is a one-off. John was the last great prophet. But also, John, we never stop needing John's message. We never stop needing John's message because... Uh, John taught us about repentance. In some ways to come to Jesus, we still need to come through John the Baptist. Because Jesus, the great God, the great King, has come. And we need to recognise that he is our ruler. That he is in charge of our lives. And we need to bow to his rule. We need to turn around. Stop being in, thinking we're in control. And give up control to him. Jesus came to die to forgive sins. Which means we need to repent, we need to admit that we're sinners. Jesus came to lead us into life to the full, and so we need to surrender our lives to him and let him lead us. And so repentance continues to define the Christian life. I need to realise that where there's a clash between me and God, I'm wrong and he's right. And I still need forgiveness. It's also, as we'll see more of, wonderfully freeing and liberating and delightful because once I've realised that I deserve nothing from God and it's only based on me accepting forgiveness, man, me just repenting of my wrong and looking to him, I realise I've got no reason to ignore or look down on others. I've got no reason to think that I'm better than them as Eds opened the service by talking about that Pharisee and the tax collector, the great religious leader, who thought he was something before God, and Jesus said, No, it was the tax collector, the bad the the guy who knew that he was rubbish. Who was who had the humility to realise that he needed God's rescue, and it means that we can't look down on others. Which leads on to our next our next point on the sheet. What does repentance mean? look like in practice? What does repentance look like in practice? What does this turnaround look like? What change will it make? Well, first, I've given you a chance to fill in the blanks, so if you've uh, got a pen on you and that would help you to concentrate and stay awake. I'm sure to notice Matt struggling to stay awake. Um, um, The the first point there is recognise you need forgiveness. There's a, a picture of a guy... And looking ashamed, writing sorry across the wall. Recognise you need forgiveness. Verse 7 on the sheets. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? It's not very flattering, is it at all? This is some preacher. And obviously thought what he was saying was true, because he wasn't just trying to win people over with smooth words. You brood of vipers, that link to snakes is connecting them back to the imagery of the devil, saying you're not children of God, you're children of the devil. And who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Who warned you to flee from God's anger against sin? And we'll think more about that. That may be something that shocks us, the idea that God would be angry. Um, We'll come on to that. But there seem to have been people here coming to John thinking, this baptism, this, this baptism thing, seems like the next religious trend. This, this seems like the thing we ought to be doing to look like a proper Israelite. Like, like a way to show that we've got the right pedigree. That we come from the right background. And John is saying to them, no, don't you rely on your pedigree. Don't you rely on your background. You're about as useful as a dead tree, John says. Let's see that as we read on verse 8. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Recognize you need forgiveness. I've put a picture of a dead tree there. Imagine someone, a fruit farmer, going out into his orchard, and all he sees is dead tree upon dead tree upon dead tree. And he gets out his axe, and he places it at the root of the tree, just ready to chop that tree down. John is saying that there's something wrong with us. There's something that has cut us off from God, the source of life, and so we're like Dead trees, and no, no coming to God and saying, "Look at my background. I was I was born into the right family. I was born into a Christian family. Can't you see that?" Or or look at how nice I am, just relative to all those other people. I, I've never I've never murdered. I've never raped anyone. In fact, I'm pretty pleasant. I'm above average. God, you should accept me. John is saying, you don't get it. You don't get it. If you're not in right relationship with God, if you don't live abundant life in every way, if you're not perfect actually, well then how can you call yourself a child of God? You're like a dead tree and the axe is at the root of the trees. And yet he he warns us, he warns us, which suggests that there's hope. There's hope. But before we go on to that, I just want to say this is one of the reasons, this little passage here is one of the reasons that we at this church don't practice infant baptism. Now there are very good churches that do, but we don't baptise children. Because one thing that's very clear from this passage is that it's not about the family you're born into. Your relationship with God is not about the family that you're born into. It's about a personal repentance and faith. Abraham was um, the great patriarch, the the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of all the Jewish people. And so being uh, descended from Abraham mattered a lot because it meant you were part of God's people because God made a promise to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. And so John is saying here, you need to realize that God can raise up children, spiritual children, from stones, from stones. It's not about the family that you're born into. It's about personal repentance and faith. It's about new birth into a new family. And so this is a new sign, not to symbolise physical birth, but spiritual birth. And it's a very powerful testimony that people go down into the water and dying, and then being held under the water, as it were, buried with the Lord Jesus Christ, and then raised up out of the water to new life in him. It's a very powerful visual aid. And we would say that we think that's undermined by the practice of baptising babies. If you want to talk to me more about that, please, please do. But we'll keep going. Within this very, very harsh message, I don't know if you saw a glimmer of hope. It's there in verse eight. He says, "Produce fruit in keeping with repentance." He's talking about it's a dead tree. I mean, how could a tree like that produce fruit? What hope is there to preach to something like that? John seems to think that repentance can give new life. Repentance can give new life to dead trees. And I've summarised this, and you can fill in the blanks if you want to, uh, sort point two there. Depend on God to live a changed life. Depend on God to live a changed life. First age, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, if you repent, if you turn around and stop trusting in yourself, but instead trust in the God you were made to know, then your life will be transformed. (laughs) Because suddenly, rather than being cut off from the source of life, you're reconnected to the source of life. Rather than being planted, as it were, in desert land, you're planted by a beautiful river, where water flows up through the tree. New life is given to you and you can start to produce fruit to live the life that you were made to live in relationship with the gods who made you to know him. You need to realise that if you're going to produce this kind of fruit, it's not the kind of fruit that says, oh God, I'm good enough for you, I'm better than the average person. This is his fruit, not your fruit. <coughs> if there's going to be a change, it's got to be in total dependence on him. So you could define sin as independence from God. Saying, God, I don't need you. I set myself up apart from you. I can live life without you. And if you're a tree or a branch independent from the source of life, then you're going to die, aren't you? And so repentance is saying, God, I'm not in control. I don't want to be independent of you. In fact, I want to be back in relationship with you. And so then a changed life can begin. Not because you're worth it in yourself, not because you've got any reason to look down on others, but because God is starting to give life into your veins so that you can produce fruit. And so it will lead to a changed life. A changed life. And so we know whether we're Christians or not, in part. Because that message, that good news of being able to be back in relationship with God, changes us. And if we get it, it will create a beautiful society. John starts to allude to that as we read on. Do you see verse 10? The crowd asks him, what should we do then? Verse 11, John says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. If you have more than you need, John is saying, if you're in right relationship with God, if you're flourishing in life with him, then you will naturally just share it with those who have less than they need. It's very striking. He takes it right down to the nitty-gritty. It gets very practical, doesn't he? If you've got two shirts, you should share with one who has none. You have two off. We have more than we need. <coughs> If we think about this kind of attitude, it's voluntary, it's not, it's not compulsory. But it creates a beautiful society. And actually, as that good news, the good news of the Lord Jesus went out, we start to see those little communities forming. And in Acts chapter 4, that's uh, the account of after Jesus died and rose, and his, the word going out to his people and the church being established, we get this little snippet of this kind of beautiful society. In Acts chapter 4, verses 33 to 35... Luke, who also wrote this, writes, And God's grace was so powerful at work in them all. God's grace was so powerful at work in them all. Do you see, that is not their fruit, it's his fruit. God's grace was so powerful at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Isn't that amazing? People would sell their houses... So that they could give to the needy people in the community around them. So that they could serve, so that they could love. What a beautiful society that would be. Isn't that something we aspire to as this church? And then verse 12, it's not about how good you are or how good you were or your pedigree. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Tax collectors are not like the inland revenue today. That's absolutely fine. Uh, we're not in a corrupt society. But then they were in a very corrupt society... And these tax collectors worked for the occupying power, the Romans, and they were the lowest of the low. And their job was to collect the taxes they were, they were told to collect, but they knew that all their people would hate them for doing it, for collecting taxes for an occupying power. And so what the Romans permitted them to do was to use any means they liked, and to name the amount, as long as they handed over a set amount to the authorities. And so these guys went round like the equivalent of modern loan sharks, sort of banging on people's doors with heavies behind them and insisting that money was handed over. And they always took more than they were supposed to, and that's how they lined their pockets and they became very rich. So they were very rich, but very unpopular. They were seen as the worst possible people in society. (coughs) And they come, and they say, teacher, what should we do? And he says, verse 13, don't collect any more than you are required to. See, the norm for a tax collector would be to collect more than you needed, more than you were allowed to, so that you could line your own pockets. Sorry, you're allowed to collect as much as you like, but J- John says no big change, be different. Don't conform to what all the other tax collectors are doing. No, only collect what you have to. Obey the law of the land and no more. And then verse 14, some soldiers came and asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Military control, soldiers working for the government would often abuse their power. It happens today, and wonderfully not so much in this society, but uh, where the constraints are lifted off soldiers, they often do awful things, and they justify it because they're all doing it. John says don't conform to each other be transformed, be changed be different, live radically different lives, that's one of our sort of vision uh, sub-points as it were, in trying to be shameless in worship to God we also want to live radically different lives we want our relationship with God to shape how we live I wonder if this is something perhaps you could jot down to discuss round tables when we finish in a minute what do you do now What do you do now that you know you should stop doing? And what don't you do now that perhaps you should be doing? Because if you really get this, if you really understand that forgiveness is offered to you, if you turn back and get into right relationship with God, it'll change you. That's something we should be asking each other each week. That's why we have a, session, a, a section of confession and repentance every Sunday in different ways. You see, if there's nothing changing, then we need to ask ourselves, if we're even a Christian, if there's nothing changing in our lives, if there aren't things that, that God is putting his finger on and showing us, if you get this, if you understand this good news then you'll do things differently. If there's nothing of that in our lives, then we need to ask ourselves, are we producing fruit in keeping with repentance? Sometimes, especially when we first come to Jesus, or when we realise there's something we've been keeping back from him, there are big changes that we need to make. And it can feel scary to hand our lives over to God like that. Is there something in your life that you know you need to hand over to him, and you're finding it hard, and you're not surrendering? Surrendering to him. You need to realise that this is the God who made you and knows you and loves you. And so you can give it to him. Now, as we move faster into the next section, there'll be some thinking, wow, this kind of society sounds like a picture of heaven. No wonder some people start thinking verse 15. Do you see verse 15, what they're thinking? The people were waiting expectantly and were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. Messiah just means God's anointed king, the king that God has appointed, the one who would come. But the Messiah was seen as the perfect king, of which all previous kings were just foreshadows. And people are wondering, is John this great king, this divine king who's come to rescue people? So we move into our much shorter second Point. Understand the importance of Jesus. Understand the importance of Jesus. Verse 16 John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is talking about Jesus, as we're going to see. But what's so striking is just how low John sees himself in comparison to Jesus. So John is the great prophet, the final prophet, the one comes prepared way for the Lord. In religious terms, he couldn't be more important. And how does he describe himself? He says, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. And I'm told that in Jewish society at the time, even a Jewish slave wasn't required to unstrap the sandals of his master because it was considered way too demeaning because people would walk through the mucky streets. It wouldn't even require a slave to do it. And John says, I'm not even as good as a slave in comparison to the one who's coming. So if you ever hear someone saying that Jesus was just a good man or just a a great prophet... You know, one among many, like Muhammad and Buddha and Krishna and so on. You just haven't understood what John's talking about. John is saying, I'm just a warm-up act. And do you see what he says, verse 16? He says, baptism, that's just an outward picture. He says, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What I do outwardly, what I do with water, what I do as a symbol of dying and being buried and rising again to new life. Jesus is going to do in reality. He's going to do it in your heart. Jesus is going to make not an external change or a symbol. Jesus is going to do something internal and eternal. His baptism will be real. But there's something sobering that we see that we may not, we may not pick up on in verse 16. But it gets explained as we go on. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Could be translated, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit or fire. This fire isn't the fire of Pentecost. No one who was listening to John knew what Pentecost was. And if you don't know what Pentecost was, you don't need to worry at the moment. Because this fire is the fire described in verse 17. Verse 17. You see, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's a picture of the fire of God's judgment. It's the same picture that John used when he said the axe is at the root of the trees, ready to cut down the tree that doesn't produce fruit. John is saying that our eternal future. Depends on our response to Jesus. He's saying that we're either a dead tree, we're either chaff. Chaff is the is the dusty stuff that surrounds the the wheat in a wheat plant, and you keep the grain, and the chaff just gets thrown into the wind. And, and a winnowing fork is is how they used to separate the two. They they get the fork, put it into the pile of Uh, uh, of straw with the wheat in it and they'd throw it up into the air and the heavy wheat would land straight down and the chaff would blow into a pile next to it and that would then be swept up and burnt. That's what happened on a threshing floor. And so this imagery of the threshing floor is God's judgment when he will take the dead and the living and the dead will be burned up. Do you see the frightening thing he says with unquenchable fire? Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived, called it hell. The word he used for hell was the same word that was used for the rubbish dump outside Jerusalem. Where it was constantly burning and constantly rotting. John is getting us ready for Jesus who decides whether we end up in right relationship with God. Or whether we end up on the constantly burning rubbish dump of history away from a relationship with God, only experiencing his anger. It's a frightening thing. It's the kind of thing that would make you want to turn away from this kind of fiery preacher and think, he must be talking nonsense, except it's historically reliable. And Jesus comes and he shows that he really is the most loving man who ever lived. And that relationship with him is the most wonderful and glorious thing. And and actually this warning is the kindest possible thing he could give us. You know, in, in this looking forward to judgment, God is getting us ready for the final return of Jesus. The final return. You see, in those prophecies in Isaiah, it was as if everything was sort of connected up. That, that everyone would see this great king coming. And yet you also got this great king coming as a, as a suffering servant. But also as the great judge who would bring in the end of time and bring in a new heavens and a new earth and a perfect place. And what's going on here? Well actually it's two stage. God comes first to rescue the person of Jesus. But finally he will come again as judge. And are we ready to meet him? The last little section is a personal warning. Focusing on one man. Herod. Let me just read verses 19 and 20 as we close. When John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. We don't get a lot of detail here, but basically we know from other accounts, um, like in Mark, that Herod really liked listening to John and found him fascinating. Thought he was really insightful and he clearly was a prophet. And that the people were right to venerate him think he was great. But then John makes the stupid mistake of challenging a king on his immoral behavior. His marriage to Herodias was adulterous and incestuous. And so John was absolutely right to say to him, look, if you're going to produce fruits in keeping with repentance, this has got to change. And so Herod, rather than listening to John and seeing that to do the right thing in this situation, would liberate him and free him for a right relationship with God, he locks John up and he carries on living, pushing John, but more importantly God, out of the picture. And the question is, will we be like Herod? That's really the question Luke's asking us by putting in that little bit there. Will we be like Herod? Will we continue to just push God out of the picture? To find ways to avoid listening to his words, coming back to hear God's word explained, so you see more of Jesus introduced in Luke's gospel. Will we stop letting it go personal? Will we stop meeting up with other Christians who'll help us, not in judgmental attitude, but in love, to show us our sin and show us where we're falling short? I'm so grateful to those who've pointed out my sins that I don't often see myself, so that I can come back into a wholehearted relationship with God through Jesus. See, Herod ignored John, and by the time he meets Jesus at the end of Luke's account, it's too late. Jesus stays quiet, Herod enjoys a bit of light amusement, and then hands Jesus back to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. It was helped by that little um, warning sign. I think it's a, it's a thing online where you type in what warning you want to give so that you can stick it on your house to say warning beware of the dog or warning whatever it is. But actually, warning your text here, what what is it that you're doing that needs to go in there that you need to be warned against? For Herod, it was his adulterous and incestuous marriage. What is it for you? Because, you know, God's judgment, so often people think God's judgment is... If you're naughty, then God will zap you. And so whatever hard things you're going through at the moment, you know what, that's God getting you because you're naughty, you're bad, and if only you were better behaved, then God would make life easier for you. That is nonsense. That is a lie. God's judgment so often is displayed in God letting us. It rhymes, doesn't it? It's not God will get you, it's God will let you. For Herod's, God let him continue until he went his own destructive, self-destructive way away from a relationship with God like a dead tree, unable to connect with a source of life. So we need to listen to the voice of God now. You see, the stakes are so high. We need to see just how important Jesus is, that he holds our eternity in the balance. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus to come? in rescue. Let's pray. Oh Father, thank you so much that in your love, in your kindness, in your goodness, you warn us so that we would come back into relationship with you. Please would we take this message and would you sink it deep into our own hearts? Would we see what we need to stop doing that we are doing or start doing that we're not doing? Not because we could ever earn our way towards you, but because the Lord Jesus has already come to live and die and be raised for us so that we can be in right relationship with you. Please, with that, transform us. In his name, Amen. Amen.